Well, good morning, church. Hope you guys are doing well. I'm looking forward to hopefully, uh, I don't think it has been mentioned, but the air conditioner was not running this morning, so uh, I will try my best to do it one and a quarter time uh, on the, uh, the podcast uh, just to get you guys out of here a little bit faster and for the ladies so you can get to uh, your picnic. But we've been going through the parables of Jesus series, and the way I like to think of it, Jesus is teaching his disciples so much more than they often realize in the moment. Things that you hear right now Five minutes from now, five months from now, five decades from now, you go, wow, that's what he meant by that. And if you haven't been with us throughout the series, we, we started out, Mark did a really good job kind of overviewing the parables for those of us who did not go to seminary um, about what they are. Um, and we, we saw two things. Uh, a parable is an earthly story to illustrate a heavenly meaning. And a parable is also, it could be a simple word, picture, or story composed to illustrate a profound biblical truth. And Mark went on to highlight the fact that Jesus told parables for two very distinct reasons. He told them to reveal truth to those given ears to hear, but he also told them to conceal truth from those with hard hearts. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey, Yancey sorry, recounts an old story about C.S. Lewis and how he identified what makes Christianity so unique in our world. Maybe you've heard it, but I'll, I'll tell it now. Years ago, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. The incarnation, other religions, had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. And this debate went on for hours until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and uttered the phrase, what's the rumpus about? Love good British grammar. He heard in reply from his colleagues that they were discussing Christianity's unique contribution to to world religions or among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct in our humanity. Can I get an amen? The Buddhist eightfold path the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law. Each of these offers a way for you and I to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Well, as we dive in this morning, we'll be in Matthew chapter 18, and we'll be looking at a parable about grace, about forgiveness. It's actually one of Jesus' most strongly worded parables around the idea of forgiveness. And as we, as we dive in, I want us to see two big ideas this morning that he's letting his disciples in on. Number one, it's the cost of forgiveness. And number two, it's the cost of forgetting forgiveness. Now, if you don't own a Bible, after our service, we'd love for you to stop by the Connect Point. If you want to give, that's great as well. Um, but we'd love to uh, give you a copy of the Bible. I know Levi typically has like lots of them. So uh, FSM students, after the service is your chance to go get your Bible before it is gifted in an act of evangelism and gospel sharing, and your parents have to buy a new one for you. But to those of you who might get that Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, but before we jump into our text this morning, uh, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, you are such a good God, 
And there are just so many evidences um, outside this room, but God, inside this room of your grace and your mercy uh, with your church family. I just ask that you would just speak this morning. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would speak through me. Let it not be me. Let it be you speaking to uh, Fellowship Nashville this morning. May your grace abound so, so much. We love you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we started out this series by saying something very important, and I won't do it the way Mark does because I I love you guys. Um, But if we're reading the parables, context is absolutely crucial. It's critical, okay? And the parable we're going to look at this morning is no different. And before we jump into it, um, we have to understand what's around it. It's nestled between some rather interesting passages. Before it, we have the disciples getting a lesson from Jesus about true humility in the first nine verses of chapter 18. And then he follows that up by telling them the parable of the lost sheep, which points out the extravagant pursuing love of our Heavenly Father. And then he walks us through what accountability and restoration can look like for believers when they have been sinned against by a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, We see that in verses 15 through 20. And then on the other side of the passage, Jesus is teaching for the second time in Matthew's gospel on divorce. Humility and forgiveness are going to be central themes and ideas throughout those passages. So you can imagine that the context here probably points to that as well. But this this passage, this parable, starts out with a question. A question from our friend Peter. Oh, you love Peter. Turn to verse 21. Listen to what Peter says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. (laughs) Now, as Peter asks Jesus this question, he's probably thinking he's being extremely gracious, right? Judaism, which Peter, a Jewish man, was well acquainted with, taught that three times was sufficient to display a forgiving spirit. If I wrong Hunter three times on the fourth, he's no longer obligated to forgive me. My apologies, but you know. We see this mentioned in the Old Testament in Job 33, 29 through 30, and in a couple of different places in the book of Amos. Sadly, in the year of our Lord, 2022, three times seems like an exorbitant quantity of forgiveness to offer those who have wronged us. Again, can I get an amen? No, no. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Tricked you. Forgive me. The good news, though, is that Jesus has other ideas about forgiveness. Jesus says to him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, that hurts. But it's also important. You see, some translations will say 70 times seven, like you see there. Others say 77 times. Either way, it's a lot more than seven times, or three times, or one time. Quick math here. 77 times is much larger than seven times, and 70 times seven, that's 490 times. Is Jesus telling Peter and us that we're done once we hit 491 times, 78 times? Are we, are we done 
forgiving and showing and extending forgiveness and grace at that point? No, 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 no. Jesus's point isn't to put a cap on how often we should be forgiving. It's more to point out that this is to be a natural part of our lives. If you noticed in Peter's question, he acknowledges that we live in a sinful world, right? Forgiveness should be something that just oozes out of a believer. It's to be the living daily posture of one who has experienced forgiveness firsthand. And this is what Jesus does, okay? He he exposes the idols of our hearts and he uproots them to plant something better, something more beautiful, even if it's painful in the moment. And Jesus is telling all of his disciples, past, present, future, that all disciples keep forgiving without keeping count. And that leads us to our first point this morning, the cost of forgiveness. So Jesus moves from this stunning declaration about forgiveness into a parable that's going to illustrate the point. Notice what he says starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Now notice how Jesus starts this parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to is telling us that what we are about to hear with our ears and hopefully our hearts is to be the norm. It's the default, it's the regular, it's the expected of life in the kingdom. And life in the kingdom will look a certain way. But before we get to it, much like this king and his servant, we've got to settle some business. Jesus says that the kingdom may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began, one of the servants is brought to him who owes him 10,000 talents. In this time period, a talent was a monetary unit worth around 20 years wages for a person. Let that sink into your head for a moment. A single talent would account for two decades of work for you and me. College students that are about to graduate, that Work Matters book, going to be helpful. Two decades for one talent. And the disciples no doubt understood such, such a sum and the magnitude of it. I can only imagine after Peter's jaw was picked up off the floor after hearing the number of times he should be forgiving someone, it went right back down to the floor when he saw this and heard this. Now, I was a C student in high school, so I did not get into Vanderbilt or many other places, but I am sharp with some things, okay? So we're going to do some quick math here. If one talent is worth 20 years wages, then 10,000 talents would represent 200,000 years wages. Again, let that sink in for a moment. I don't know about you, but I don't know of anyone outside of Jesus who is eternal 
that's lived 200,000 years, let alone worked for all of them. We're lucky if we get 30, 35 years of good work, maybe 80 years of life for most of us if we don't have any catastrophic life or health events that come up. But that's still a lot less than 200,000. I'm gonna need John Dansby to work on getting me new hearts multiple, multiple times, okay? Imagine for a moment owing someone that much money. How could you possibly even dare come close to paying that back? You can't. Even if you win Powerball, even if you win Mega Millions, both of them multiple times over, you're not coming close to it. You just can't. And that's Jesus' point. Now, for us, we think Jesus will make, make this just magically go away, magically kind of disappear. But that's not what actually happens in, in the story. Jesus doesn't say the money magically appears for the servant. Hey, you know, here you go. Here's 200,000 years. He, in fact, paints a bleak picture for the servant. The king here is owed money. He's owed lots and lots and lots of money, and he's looking to settle up his account with him. Maybe he, he can't pay because he had some bad business dealings that uh, the, the king gave him this money for, and it just kind of backfired on him. It didn't work out as planned. But when the servant can't pay, the king orders his servant, his family, and all of his possessions sold to help pay the debt, not erase it. Now, again, we may feel bad for this servant, and we may actually cringe at that image of him and his family, all of his possessions being sold to pay for the debt, but this was actually quite common in the Old Testament. If you read Exodus 21, 1 through 11, you can see this in Deuteronomy 15, 2 Kings, Nehemiah 5. This is a way to punish those who couldn't possibly pay off the full amount of a debt. They're going to work it off. You would also see individuals go into almost like indentured servitude to help work off that debt. But in both cases, the king, in this case, the person who's owed that debt, would still want that debtor and their family to be as healthy and as viable a worker for as long as as possible. They would take care of them. This wasn't the chattel slavery that has plagued the world for centuries. This isn't the same thing that we have spent decades and decades fighting against. This wasn't ideal by any means, but this was not inhumane. However, seeing a debt so large would likely elicit the same response from the disciples as it likely does from you right now, a sense of hopelessness. And the parable goes on to describe the servant's response. Verse 26, he says, The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. So the servant here, he falls to his knees, Jesus tells us, and he begins begging. It's this pity party. You see it in a movie. You see it all the time. He goes as far as to say that if the king has patience, he will pay him everything back. We can identify with this, right? If you owe somebody something and you don't have it with you right that moment, just give me a little more time. I'm reminded of the old Popeye cartoon where Mr. Wimpy, he wanted a hamburger. And he would always say, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Because he didn't have the money, but he still wanted to, to take advantage of the benefit. We're willing to do just about anything to make the impossible happen. All we need is some time to pull it off. And yet, 
if we are honest, that is the predicament that every single human being has in this world. We live in a sin-filled world and we are broken and we owe a debt that we could never possibly pay. My old youth pastor, I'm going to get philosophical here for just a moment, so bear with me. He made a statement one time, and I think it helped change the way I understand depravity, the way I understand my debt. He said, we're not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You see, we, if we are sinners because we sin, then the onus is on us to just change our behavior, change our actions, change our thoughts, change everything about us. But it's on us, right? We, we fix the problem, right? But if we sin because we are sinners, then it's our identity that's the problem. We are created in God's image, but we are broken image bearers. And we have no possible hope of fixing that on our own. We owe a debt so enormous that we couldn't possibly begin to pay it down. It's impossible. You have zero shot. Welcome to church this morning. But that's why Christ's life, death, and resurrection matters so, so much to the believer. It is our only possible hope in a world considering where we, the created, stand before our creator. That's why we worship because that debt has been paid. And Jesus goes on to tell the disciples of the master's reaction to this servant. Out of pity, out of pity for the servant, the master released him and he forgave the debt. Now let that sink in for a moment. The master releases him and forgave the debt. He owed him such a costly debt, remember, 200,000 years work, and the master not only decides that canceling the, the selling of the servant and his family and his possessions was fine, but he goes on and he forgives the debt. Now you may be asking yourself when I'm going to get to the part about forgiveness being costly. Well, welcome, you've, you've made it here with me. When the king forgives the debt of his servant, he's saying he isn't going to make him pay. He isn't saying that the debt is magically vanished. He's eating that cost. He's losing out on what he's legally owed. Ladies and gentlemen, forgiveness is costly. Only it's costly for the person doing the forgiving. When we forgive others, we pay the debt ourselves. We do not make them pay the debt that they owe to us because they can't possibly pay it back. And when we think of our forgiveness, it's not us who it was costly for, it's God who it was costly for. It cost God the Father sending his son to live the life we couldn't live because of sin and dying the death we deserve to die because of sin to satisfy the demands of the law. Think about Romans 5, 10 through 11 with me for a moment. This is what Paul says about this. For if while we were enemies... Whew. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, it would be wonderful if Jesus finished the parable right there. We'd love that. But he doesn't. He goes into what happens next, which gets to our second big idea this morning, and that's the cost of forgetting forgiveness. Notice verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his, servant, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Similar response, am I right? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay all the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So Jesus tells us that the the servant who has just been forgiven this astronomical debt, he goes out, he finds a servant that owes him 100 denarii, and he begins choking him. Not the best response. Now again, we're going to do a little currency explanation here, okay? We did it earlier. A talent was worth about 20 years wages, so 10,000 was 200,000 years worth of work. Well, we got 100 denarii owed here. This would have been about the equivalent of 20 weeks wages. Now, if someone owed you that much money, you probably hope to get it back, right? Right? But let's compare for just a moment, shall we? 20 weeks wages, 200,000 years wages. Which is more significant? One servant owes a decent debt, and the other owes a debt he could never possibly pay in thousands of lifetimes. And yet, the one that has been forgiven so, so much shows no grace or mercy, is not willing to forgive the servant who owes him such a smaller debt in comparison. And in fact, Jesus says that he refused to even be patient with him and had him put into prison until he should pay the debt. There's just one big problem with that. When people were put in prison in that world, they weren't working off a debt. They weren't working at all. They were sitting chained up in a cell. There was no hope. They were were being guarded by a jailer. They had no shot at working any of that debt down. This is not justice. This is retribution. It's vengeance. And sadly, I think it is often the posture that we have when we have been wronged. I'll show them. I'll get them back for what they did to me. I could never forgive so-and-so for that. I don't get mad. I get even. I could go on and on. And many of us could recount numerous examples of this from our own lives. Now, I won't ask for raised hands this morning, but how many of us have been wounded by the words or actions of a close friend or family member, even someone in a church body, maybe, maybe even here or at any point? What was our reaction? How many days, weeks, months, years did we let it just kind of fester in our soul before we sought to reconcile the relationship? Or are we still holding on to that wound this morning? 
Thankfully, Jesus says for the one servant, he wasn't alone. There were some fellow servants who witnessed what happened and they went back and they reported it to their master. The master then calls the unforgiving servant back into his presence and he dishes out punishment. Verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's Jesus with that language again. Going to the heart, exposing the idol and trying to uproot that for something better. Now, I do want to be cautious here for a moment. The good Dr. Irving mentioned way back at the start of our series, but one thing that we want to be careful of when we're reading parables is that we don't want to over-allegorize them. We don't want to, to, to read so much into the story that we miss things. Well, I will say, I've heard numerous stories about this, uh, sermons about this parable throughout my life, and they have always treated this as a parable talking about salvation. And it's easy to see why people think that. There's a massive debt that can't possibly be paid and is forgiven. A servant who is freed from the penalty of that debt. It makes sense. But when we see this response from the master, we must also remember that as Mark also mentioned a few weeks ago, we can't lose our salvation. So I don't think that's the main point of the parable. I actually think the, the main point is that this is a parable about the everyday life of a believer. I think this is a parable that talks about your Monday, your Wednesday, your Friday, your Sunday, you name it. Also, Peter starts off by saying, my brother, and Jesus, Jesus uh, has just talked them on forgiveness and reconciliation when a brother uh, or, or sister commits a sin against us. This is, not, uh, this is not something that is like, you know, far off, one-off kind of thing. This is someone you're in close relationship with. I think the idea here is that believers who understand that they have been forgiven such a cosmic debt will show unbelievable amounts of grace, which is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy, which is not getting what you and I do deserve to others when they wrong us. If these aren't the attitude and actions of someone who professes Christ, perhaps they don't really know him. I think this is a cautionary tale for people who profess Jesus. There's a story about G.K. Chesterton, who was a, another famous Christian apologist from the late 19th and early 20th century. In 1905, the Daily News um, it had actually, it's a paper that Charles Dickens started, had asked scholars, philosophers, and other prominent individuals if they could help answer the question of what was wrong with the world. The Daily News would post their response for the readers to take in. Chesterton was one of the individuals that they asked. His response wasn't some long, eloquent essay that took up pages and pages of the paper. Rather, it was merely a few short sentences. Here's what he says. In one sense, and that the eternal sense, the thing is plain. To answer the question, what is wrong, 
is or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. Now, that's what he actually said, but it's often been quoted this way, and I actually really like it. Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Not some long, prolific essay of pages and pages, but a few choice words that got to the heart of the problem, which was the problem of the heart. So what do we take away from Jesus' parable here? Well, a few things. Number one, our motivation to forgive others is directly linked to the forgiveness given to us by Christ. We can never repay our debt to God, but thankfully Jesus paid it for us so we don't have to. Number two, and this is a great quote from Warren Wearsby. Thank you, Mark, for the Wearsby quote. Forgiveness must not only be a past event in history, but a present reality in our daily experience. And I think what he's saying there is this, we are the ones who lose out when we don't forgive others. The servant who was forgiven much and didn't forgive himself or didn't forgive sent himself into prison by his response to such grace. I'm reminded of Paul's message to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 4 verse 32, what does Paul tell them? Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Number three, the goal of seeking forgiveness is reconciled relationships. When our brother or sister in Christ sins against us, and they will, or when we sin against them, and we will, seeking forgiveness is about reconciling that relationship, even at a great cost. It puts on display for a watching world the gospel in a very clear, a very tangible way, for them to behold. And when they see it, perhaps they see for the first time the possibility of a holy God who deeply desires to reconcile his relationship with them as well. That may be you this morning. And if it is, our elders would love to talk to you. I'd love to talk with you. Maybe the person sitting next to you would love to talk with you. As I call the band back up to the stage, I'm reminded of the feast that you and I are about to partake in. Just as forgiveness is a tangible example of the gospel, the Lord's Supper is a tangible gospel reminder for believers of the life that we have because of the death of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if they're watching like bread or as I now am going to call him meat biscuit, but I'm reminded this morning of the dear saints at Emmanuel Church back in Birmingham. I've mentioned them before, but every week we would take the Lord's Supper. And there were two stations. There was one over here in front of the stage, and there was one over here on the other side. And each station would have two individuals, one holding a plate with the bread, the other holding the cup with the juice. We were a Baptist church after all, so no wine. But folks would line up in the aisles, similarly to how we did things here pre-pandemic and how I really, really hope we do soon. 
Not trying to start a church war or anything like that, but I do miss it. And they'd make their way to one of those stations. The person holding the bread would tell each person, this is the body of Christ broken for you. The person holding the cup would then tell each person as they dip the bread into the cup, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And every single week, whether the sermon was a grand slam or a double, I won't call it a single or even a single single because I'm an encourager. Each person would hear the gospel twice. They'd hear it for 35, 40 minutes and then they'd hear it again as they took the Lord's Supper. They'd be reminded that every time that they are taking this meal because of Jesus, that their sins had been forgiven. Their debt had been paid entirely for all eternity. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. You have the bread and you have the juice in front of you. We're going to celebrate that that debt has been paid. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the band not to have you stand right away as I know we want to. We feel it. We want to sing. But take a moment and ponder the reality that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been forgiven of every sin that has ever been or will ever be associated with you. I'm going all Levi right here. It's good news. I want you, as I pray, to take the elements and consider them before you take them. And then I want you to stand and sing as you're ready and just sing and just aggravate, aggravate the heck out of Satan, okay? Just do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so, so good to us. And because of Jesus, we are adopted into your family. Help us to ponder that and help us to praise you for that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.